Good morning. <laughs> so thanks for the introduction, Danny. Like Danny said, I grew up going to this church my whole life, but I've never been on this side before. This is new. Um, so yeah, grew up in Evanston, went to EBF my whole life, went to Northwestern, go Cats. And hey, now I work with Athletes in Action as my full-time job. And there we use sports as a platform to launch spiritual movements on college campuses. I love the work that I get to do and have learned a ton since starting in vocational ministry a year ago. That being said, I've never preached at a church before. And I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of nervous right now. While it's a tremendous privilege and I'm grateful for the opportunity, I also feel the weight of responsibility that's carried by those that have been entrusted with teaching from the Bible. As I've prepared the sermon over the past several weeks, I've wrestled with feelings of unworthiness for the task that I've been given. With that in mind, will you please pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, I just thank you for who you are. Thank you for the chance that I have to preach this morning. I just pray that you will speak through me, Lord. Lord, we come before you in desperate, desperate need of you. We grieve as we hear news of shootings in Texas and in Ohio that happened just over the past day. We know these things are not as they are meant to be. They show a world that's broken and in desperate need of you. So God, I just pray that you will speak through me today. I pray that my words will be your words. I pray that anything that I say that is not of you will be quickly forgotten. But anything that I say that is of you will be heard, remembered, and acted on. I pray this in your name. Amen. So throughout Jesus' time on earth, he made some very radical claims. You all as a church just went in depth on several of these claims when you preached through the I am statements, seven of the statements that Jesus made in the book of John. Each and every one of those seven I am statements was a radical statement. But I want to ask some input from you guys. This is not rhetorical. I actually want you guys to say stuff back to me. What do you guys think was the most radical thing that Jesus ever said? No one comes to the Father except through me. What else we got? I and the Father are one. Anyone else? <laughs> if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. Mm. Now, those are all very, very radical statements. But as radical as those things are, I want to suggest that the most radical thing that Jesus ever said was what he said to his disciples at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. That would be what we know today as the Great Commission. The Great Commission contains three radical points that Jesus makes to his disciples after his resurrection and shortly before his ascension into heaven. All authority has been given to me. Make disciples and I am with you always. Let me say that again. All authority has been given to me. Make disciples, and I am with you always. During the rest of my time with you all this morning, I hope to convince you of how radical those three points are and what their implications are for us. At the beginning of chapter 28 of Matthew, we read his account of Christ's miraculous resurrection from the dead. 
Today, we'll be in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You can go ahead and turn there. Here we'll see Jesus giving his final marching orders to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. Now, one note. Throughout my sermon, I'm going to use the disciples fairly synonymously with we and us. I'm doing this deliberately. Because even though the Great Commission was originally given to the 11 disciples, it applies just as much to Christians today. Read verse 18 with me. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mentioned that Jesus makes three radical points in the Great Commission. Here's the first radical point that Jesus makes. All authority has been given to me. Jesus demonstrated authority in many ways during his ministry on earth. He showed his authority over sickness when he healed people. He showed his authority over demons when he cast them out. But his authority doesn't stop there. After all, he gave his apostles the authority to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Is the authority given to the apostles the same kind of authority that Jesus is claiming here? Not at all. The first truly radical word that we see here is that little word, all. By claiming all authority, Jesus is saying that his authority goes far beyond healing sick people and casting out demons. When Jesus died on the cross, then resurrected three days later, he showed a new kind of authority. An authority over sin and death, a much more radical kind of authority. The other radical part about Jesus' authority is where it comes from. After all, authority is only as powerful as its source. I could tell my 12-year-old sister up there that she has the authority to eat exclusively ice cream and binge-watch the Spy Kids movies all week. I could say that. But as her brother, it wouldn't mean anything. I don't have the right to give her that kind of authority. My parents, on the other hand, are in position to give her that authority. Now, don't get your hopes up, Larissa. I don't think they will. <laughs> but the point remains that they could. As her parents, they can give Larissa authority over her ice cream intake and Netflix watching habits. As her older brother, I cannot. Authority is only as powerful as its source. If we keep reading verse 18, we see that Jesus' authority has been given to him. Given by who? By reading the bigger picture of Scripture, we understand that Jesus' authority has been given by God the Father. This is radical as well. When it comes to authority, God is the ultimate source. And Jesus is saying that God has given him all of it in heaven and on earth. Now, there are a couple things that we tend to struggle with when it comes to total authority. The first thing is that we don't really believe that Jesus has total authority. Perhaps we give him lip service and agree with our words that Jesus has all authority, but deep down, we don't really hold to that. I think perhaps a more common response for those in this room, however, might be that we believe that Jesus has total authority, but we don't like it. The implications of Jesus having total authority are immense. We don't like the concept of submitting to a total authority. Maybe some authority is okay, but total authority is a bit much. 
Earlier on in the book of Matthew, Jesus goes in during the Sermon on the Mount. He hits on nearly every area of Christian living. He talks about anger, lust, the way we speak with others, judging others. I could go on. He speaks at length about how those who follow him should be living. Then when he's done, after Jesus does the original mic drop, the response of the people listening is this. This is in Matthew 7, 28. It says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. The crowd that heard the Sermon on the Mount recognized that Jesus' authority changed the game. The things he was saying had real power to them, not just because of the words he was saying, but because of the authority that he had been given. So for us, the proper response to Jesus is rightfully acknowledging his total authority in every area of our lives. The proper response to Jesus is rightfully acknowledging his total authority in every area of our lives. Now, I want to tell you all a story about an encounter I had with an authority figure. After I graduated from NU, my plan was to be in the Air Force. I ended up deciding not to stay in the Air Force, but not before I went through eight weeks of officer training. Now, if you know anything about the military, you probably know that they're pretty big on hierarchy, and in particular, about recognizing those that are above you in that hierarchy. Now, me, as a cadet or an officer in training, I was at the very bottom of the totem pole. One thing that was drilled into our heads from the very start was that whenever we encounter an officer outside, we're to salute them. We got a lot of practice at this, and I was getting pretty good at recognizing who the officers were and then promptly saluting them. Until one day. I had just eaten lunch, and I was marching with my flight's guide-on. So a guide-on is a pennant mounted on a long pole. So you hold a hand like this and then march like that. This is my first time ever marching with a guide-on. And I thought I was killing the game. Until I realized I was marching directly towards an officer. And I didn't have the faintest idea how to salute while marching with a guide-on. I knew there was a way to do it, but I had no idea what that way was. So I, I briefly made eye contact, eye, eye contact with him, which was a mistake, and then I marched right on by without lifting a finger. I thought for a second that I may have gotten away with it. That thought came crashing down when I heard him yell, Stop! I thought to myself, here we go. He got right in my face, asking if I was aware that I had just walked past an officer without rendering a salute. I told him, yes, I was. He asked why, and I said, Sir, I don't know how to salute with a guide on. At this point, he called over another instructor and said, Ma'am, this cadet just informed me that he doesn't know how to salute with a guide on. She replied, saying, That cadet is lying. All the cadets were taught how to do that. So now I've got this guy in front of me yelling at me for disrespecting him, and the lady to my right yelling at me for lying to him, and then some other dude on my left who saw them yelling at me and wanted to jump in on the fun. On top of all that, you're always supposed to look directly ahead whenever someone is talking to or yelling at you. So if I look to the side to see who happens to be yelling at me, I get yelled at for moving my head. Mind you, this is all happening during the lunch hour. 
So there are about 100 cadets ready to march into the dining facility, standing at the position of attention, watching this all go down. It was so bad that several weeks later, a few cadets were reminiscing about the training we had gone through. And someone asked the group what the worst anyone had gotten yelled at was. Without hesitation and unanimously, the group agreed that it was for sure the time that Cadet Scholl got ripped apart for not saluting. <laughs> This whole thing happened because I failed to properly recognize someone's authority. When you're faced with the authority of Jesus, do you rightfully acknowledge him or do you just walk by? When we worship together as a church, that's an example of us communally acknowledging Jesus' authority. If you're living in unrepentant sin, that's like making eye contact with Jesus and then just walking by. So that's the first radical point that Jesus makes in the Great Commission. Jesus has been given all authority. Don't just walk by, but rightfully acknowledge that authority. The second radical point that Jesus makes in the Great Commission is a command to make disciples. Verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Now, I don't want you to miss how radical this is. Up until now, the word disciple had been used only to refer to those that were physically present with Jesus during his ministry. That's the radical thing about what Jesus is saying here. When he tells his disciples to go make other disciples of all nations, he's telling them to go all over the place, introducing people of all ethnicities to Jesus, then teaching them how to follow him. Mind you, the original audience for the Great Commission was 11 Jewish dudes from the same nation. Being told to go to all the nations making disciples would have absolutely been radical to his disciples when he heard this. So that's the radical command, to make disciples of all nations. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, someone who understands that they're sinful and that their sin separates them from God. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, the penalty for that sin has been paid. A disciple has chosen to put their faith in Jesus, and that once broken relationship with God has been made whole again. That's what a disciple is. But how are we supposed to make them? Jesus gives three verbs that explain how we're supposed to do this. By going, baptizing, and teaching. Once again, that's by going, baptizing, and teaching. Going implies that we aren't passive in this. It's a very active thing. We can't stand around waiting for people to come to us, asking to be made into disciples. We need to take the initiative and go. Baptism serves as an image of union with Christ's life, death, and resurrection. When a person gets baptized, they're immersed in water. For that split second when they're underwater, things go dark. That's signifying their old self being made dead with Christ on the cross. When they're brought back up out of the water, that's a picture of the new life that they have in Christ. When Jesus says we're to make disciples by baptizing, he's putting an emphasis on what he has already done 
for those that will turn to him. Any effort to make disciples that doesn't keep it at center, the saving work of Jesus on the cross, drastically misses the mark. You might make followers of yourself, but you won't make followers of Jesus. So we've got going, baptizing, and finally teaching. Teaching is important because people won't know how to follow Jesus if they aren't taught how to do so. Jesus doesn't just say, teach them how to follow me. He says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's a radical idea in itself, that everything Jesus has been saying is worth teaching to others. So we're to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Now I want to do a quick case study of a couple from EBF that's doing exactly this. They're making disciples on the other side of the world. Jay Erickson is one of EBF's homegrown missionaries, and him and his wife are currently serving in Tajikistan, in Central Asia. They're back in the States for a couple weeks, and I had the privilege of getting breakfast with Jay earlier this week. Jay shared his story of how he has responded to Jesus' radical command to go make disciples, and he gave me permission to share that story with you all. Jay wasn't a Christian when he came to the Northwestern in 1990. During his freshman year, a couple guys knocked on his dorm room door and shared the gospel with him, and he put his faith in Christ. He started going to EBF the following year and went through what he described to me as a reprogramming of his mind according to the scriptures. After his junior year at NU, Jay went on a six-week trip to Kazakhstan. This was shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, and in his words, the, wor- the doors for ministry there had been blown open. During their month and a half there, they were able to share the gospel with hundreds of young people in Kazakhstan. This led Jay to spend a year doing ministry in Ukraine after graduation. It was during this time that Jay started praying about where God would have him go long term. He had graduated from Northwestern with a degree in chemical engineering, which he really enjoyed doing. He prayed about entering the workforce in the U.S. as a chemical engineer, but felt the Lord calling him into long-term, cross-cultural ministry. After getting a seminary degree, Jay was thinking about where to go. At the time, about 5% of the missionary force was focused on the Muslim world. Here we have the majority of people groups that haven't been reached with the gospel. At that point, it was over a billion people. Now it's closer to two billion. They're the largest block of people that are resistant to the gospel. Jay thought to himself, if you really want to make this your life calling, why not focus on Muslims? So he decided to do that, to work among Muslims in the former Soviet Union with an emphasis on church planting. In 1999, Jay and his newly married wife, Melissa, moved to Uzbekistan in Central Asia. For 11 years, the Ericsons served faithfully there and had a fruitful ministry. As I sat across from Jay last week, he told me about the joy that it was to see churches planted and then multiply and lots of people coming to faith. Starting in 2005, however, Jay and Melissa started undergoing more and more intense persecution. Finally, in 2010, they were very suddenly deported from Uzbekistan and forced to leave all the people that they'd been building relationships with for the past decade. They moved to nearby Tajikistan and started doing ministry there. 
In contrast with the tremendous growth that they were experiencing in Uzbekistan, ministry in Tajikistan has been very difficult. Jay told me that every six months it feels like they're starting over again. He'll be building a relationship with someone who seems to be very interested in learning more about Jesus, and then they'll suddenly and inexplicably cool off. Or he'll be meeting with someone, then the secret police will come in and scare that person, and they won't want to meet with him anymore. Now, that being said, the Erickson's time in Tajikistan has not been without any fruit. Their ministry there revolves around soybean processing, which gives them an official government-sanctioned reason to be in the country, and also opens up doors for relationships with local farmers. Jay told me about a farmer who recently made a profession of faith in Jesus. But even before that, he had been excitedly telling his friends and family about what he had been learning in the Bible. EBF, I wanted to tell you the Erickson story because we should get excited about this. Here's a couple from our church that took seriously Jesus' command to go throughout all the nations. We as a church have a responsibility to pray and care for the missionaries that have been sent out from our church family. I encourage you all to be in prayer consistently for EBS missionaries. Pray for fruit and ministry, that the gospel will fall on good soil and local believers will rise up. Pray against discouragement when they aren't seeing that fruit. Pray for safety, as some of EBS missionaries, such as the Ericsons, are operating in countries where Christians suffer a lot of persecution. Pray for those things, and this is important. Stay in touch with our missionaries. Tell them that you're praying for them. Doing ministry vocationally, especially cross-culturally, can be incredibly isolating. Don't underestimate how far a simple, hey, I'm thinking of you today and praying for you, email can go. You can do this individually, or better yet, you could do it communally. Perhaps as an ethos community, you could adopt a missionary and commit to praying and caring for them. Now, caring for mission missionaries is awesome, but let's not stop there. In Western Christianity, there's very often an unfortunate misconception that this business of making disciples is best left to the professional Christians, the pastors and the missionaries. Everyone else is a sideline observer, maybe part of the support crew at best, but they're definitely not out on the field. Church, as I read this radical commission from Jesus, I can't help but think that this is not what Jesus had in mind when he gave it. The Great Commission is for all Christians, and we can all be out on the field. For some people, maybe God is calling you to go somewhere really far away and make disciples. That's what he did with Jay. Remember, Jay had a degree in chemical engineering from Northwestern. The dude had options. This missionary thing wasn't a backup plan for him. God called him to go, and he went. Maybe God is calling you to something similar, and you need to be sensitive to God's calling in your life. Many of you aren't called to do that, however, and that's okay. You're not second-class Christians, and you're also not off the hook for the Great Commission. Jesus still wants you in the game. In Evanston, we're uniquely situated to make disciples of all nations here, locally. As Gianluca mentioned a couple weeks ago, Chicago continues to be become home to refugees from all over the world. 
You could hop on the L at Dempster and go six, six stops south and be at Devon Street, an area that's home to immigrants from several countries in Central and Southern Asia. Many of those countries contain ethnic groups where a very, very small percentage of people know Jesus. You can bring it even more local, though. Before you get on the L and go six stops, you could walk out your front door and walk six steps and start a spiritual conversation with your neighbor. Ask them what their spiritual background is and then diligently listen to what they have to say. You'd be amazed at the spiritual conversations people are willing to have if someone would just start one with them. The point I'm trying to make is that just because God has you here right now doesn't mean that you're not part of his plan for making disciples of all nations right now. So church, we are the means by which God has chosen to fulfill his radical commission. We've got a job to do. All right, let's rehash where we've gone so far. Jesus has made a radical claim, claiming to have been given all authority from God. And then he's given us a radical command to go make disciples of all nations. If I were to land the plane on this sermon right now, that'd be a pretty overwhelming commission. Fortunately, there's one more radical point left. Maybe the most radical one yet. It's Jesus saying, I am with you always. In the second part of verse 20, after the baptizing and teaching bit, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go way back to what the prophet Isaiah says, some 700 years before Jesus is even born. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, since the day that Jesus was born, he's been the physically present incarnate God that was prophesied. In this radical final statement, Jesus is promising his continued presence with those that belong to him. Not just for the rest of our lives, but until the end of the age, until his second coming when he returns. This is what makes everything that Jesus just commanded possible for us to do. It's only going to happen through Christ's continued power working in and through us. We've been given an incredible tool as we seek to make disciples, the ongoing presence of Jesus with us. But we often fail to take advantage of that. Here's how this has played out in my life recently. So I started my current role with Athletes in Action a year ago. I confess that I've had an ongoing struggle with prioritizing productivity for God over presence with God. I'll look at my to-do list and see lots of great things to be doing. Scheduling lunch with that swimmer I've been studying the Bible with. Shout out. <laughs> Following up with a coach about meeting with his team. Preparing for a talk that I'm given next week. The list goes on. Before I know it, I'm halfway through that to-do list, and I haven't spent a moment in prayer or cracked open my Bible. That to-do list is awesome, full of great things to be doing. And I'm privileged to do those as part of my job. But when getting after these tasks is happening before I spend time with Jesus, that's a problem. Jesus has made it possible to spend time in his presence, 
how foolish would it be to not take him up on that offer? I felt the weight of working for Jesus out of a sense of obligation. And it really is a burden. On the flip side of that, I felt the joy that comes from laboring for the Lord out of, out of an overflow of what he's already doing in my life when I'm letting his presence be a priority over productivity for him. It's kind of like this. A couple weeks ago, I was in Colorado, and I decided to hike up one of Colorado's famous 14ers with a friend. We started super early in the morning, and we're having a blast going up this mountain. We saw the sunrise above the clouds. It was awesome. With about a mile to go until the summit, the nice trail we were on basically ended, and things got a lot steeper. We weren't hiking anymore. We were definitely in the climbing territory. As we clambered up and over big boulders, the pack I was carrying started to become more and more of a burden. A pack that was barely noticeable when we set off that morning was now reminding me of its presence on my shoulders with every step that I took. With a quarter mile to go, we had the peak in sight directly ahead of us. We were in the home stretch. We decided to both take off our packs and then hike the rest of the way without them. Then we'd get them on our way back down. Now, let me tell you, the relief that I felt when I took off that pack was incredible. That last little stretch felt amazing now that I wasn't carrying that burden. That relief is similar to how doing ministry feels when I'm doing so out of an overflow of what Jesus is doing in my life through his presence with me. Friends, there is joy to be found in laboring to fulfill this radical commission that Jesus has given us. Don't be burdened by obligation, but be freed by the ongoing presence of Jesus with you as you seek to make disciples. Church, this is the radical commission that we've been given. In light of his authority, Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations with the assurance that he'll be with us every step of the way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this mission that you've given us. You didn't have to bring us into this. You don't need us, God, but you do bring us into this, and you give us a job to do. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we as believers will live our lives fully surrendered to your authority, that we won't walk by, but we will properly acknowledge your authority in every area of our lives. Lord, I pray for boldness as we seek to go and make disciples. I pray that we won't be timid, but we'll be unashamed of the gospel that we preach. Lord, I just pray that we will prioritize your presence with us. Thank you for the assurance that we have of your ongoing presence in our lives, God. I just pray that as a church, we will continue to prioritize that over productivity for you, God. Finally, Lord, I, make, I pray that you will make us a church that is radically about your mission. In your son's name I pray. Amen.